0: Section 7. Book 2, Part 2 of The Histories of Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book Two, March to August, A.D. 69, Part Two. 220. Caecina, who seemed to have left his cruelty and profligacy on the other side of the Alps, advanced through Italy with his army under excellent discipline. The towns and colonies, however, found indications of a haughty spirit in the general's dress, when they saw the cloak of various colours, and the truths, a garment of foreign fashion clothed in which he was wont to speak to their toga clad citizens and they resented as if with a sense of personal wrong the conduct of his wife salonina though it injured no one that she presented a conspicuous figure as she rode through their towns on horseback in a purple habit they were acting on the instincts of human nature which prompt men to scrutinize with keen eyes the recent elevation of their fellows and to demand a temperate use of prosperity from none more rigorously than from those whom they have seen on a level with themselves. Caikina, after crossing the Pedus, sought to tamper with the loyalty of the Orthonianists at a conference in which he held out hopes of reward, and he was himself assailed with the same arts. After the specious but meaningless names of peace and concord had been thus bandied to and fro, Caecina turned all his thoughts and plans on the capture of Placentia, making a formidable show of preparation, as he knew that according to the success of his opening operations would be the subsequent prestige of his arms. 221. The first day, however, was spent in a furious onset rather than in the skilful approaches of a veteran army. Exposed and reckless, the troops came close under the walls, stupefied by excess in food and wine. In this struggle the amphitheatre, a most beautiful building, ...situated outside the walls, was burnt to the ground, possibly set on fire by the assailants, while they showered brands, fireballs, and ignited missiles on the besieged, possibly by the besieged themselves, while they discharged incessant volleys in return. The populace of the town, always inclined to be suspicious, believed that combustibles had been purposely introduced into the building by certain persons from the neighbouring colonies, who viewed it with envious and jealous eyes... "'because there was not in Italy another building so capacious. "'Whatever the cause of the accident, "'it was thought of but little moment "'as long as more terrible disasters were apprehended. "'But as soon as they again felt secure, "'they lamented it as though they could not have endured a heavier calamity. "'In the end, Caikina was repulsed with great slaughter among his troops, "'and the night was spent in the preparation of siege-works. "'The Vitellianists conducted mantlets, hurdles and sheds, for undermining the walls and screening the assailants. The Othonianists busied themselves in preparing stakes and huge masses of stone and of lead and brass with which to break and overwhelm the hostile ranks. The shame of failure, the hope of renown, wrought on both armies. Both were appealed to by different arguments. On the one side they extolled the strength of the legions and of the army of Germany, on the other the distinctions of the soldiery of the capital and the Praetorian cohorts. The one reviled their foes as slothful and indolent soldiers, demoralised by the circus and the theatres. The others retorted with the names of foreigner and barbarian. At the same time they lauded or vituperated Otho and Vitellius, but found indeed a more fruitful source of mutual provocation in invective than in praise. 2.22. Almost before dawn of day the walls were crowded with combatants, and the plains glittered with masses of armed men. The close array of the legions and the skirmishing parties of auxiliaries assailed with showers of arrows and stones the loftier parts of the walls, attacking them at close quarters where they were undefended, or old and decayed. The Orthonianists, who could take a more deliberate and certain aim, poured down their javelins on the German cohorts as they recklessly advanced to the city with fierce war-cries, brandishing their shields above their shoulders after the manner of their country, and leaving their bodies unprotected. The soldiers of the legions, working under the cover of mantlets and hurdles, undermined the walls, threw up earthworks, and endeavoured to burst open the gates. The Praetorians opposed them by rolling down with a tremendous crash ponderous masses of rock, placed for the purpose. Beneath these many of the assailants were buried, and many, as the slaughter increased with the confusion, and the attack from the walls became fiercer, retreated, wounded, fainting, and mangled with serious damage to the prestige of the party. Caecina ashamed of the assault on which he had so rashly ventured and unwilling ridiculed and baffled as he was to remain in the same position again crossed the paedas and resolved on marching to Cremona As he was going Terulius Kerialis with a great number of the levies from the fleet and Julius Briganticus with a few troopers gave themselves up to him Julius commanded a squadron of horse he was a Batavian Terullius was a centurion of the first rank, not unfriendly to Caecina, as he had commanded a company in Germany. 2.23 Spurina, on discovering the enemy's route, informed Annius Gallus by letter of the successful defence of Placentia, of what had happened, and of what Caecina intended to do. Gallus was then bringing up the first legion to the relief of Placentia. He hardly dared to trust so few cohorts, fearing that they could not sustain a prolonged siege or the formidable attack of the German army. On hearing that Caecina had been repulsed and was making his way to Cremona, though the legion could hardly be restrained, and in its eagerness for action, even went to the length of open mutiny, he halted at Bedriacum. This is a village situated between Verona and Cremona, and has now acquired an ill-omened celebrity by two great days of disaster to Rome. About the same time Martius Mesa fought a successful battle not far from Cremona. Martius, who was a man of energy, conveyed his gladiators in boats across the Pedas, and suddenly threw them upon the opposite bank. The Vettelianists' auxiliaries on the spot were routed. Those who made a stand were cut to pieces, the rest directing their flight to Cremona but the impetuosity of the victors was checked for it was feared that the enemy might be strengthened by reinforcements and change the fortune of the day this policy excited the suspicions of the Othonianists who put a sinister construction on all the acts of their generals vying with each other in an insolence of language proportioned to their cowardice of heart they assailed with various accusations Annius Gallus Suetonius Paulinus and Marius Celsus The murderers of Galba were the most ardent promoters of mutiny and discord. Frenzied with fear and guilt, they sought to plunge everything into confusion, resorting now to openly seditious language, now to secret letters to Otho, and he, ever ready to believe the meanest of men and suspicious of the good, irresolute in prosperity, but rising higher under reverses, was in perpetual alarm. The end of it was that he sent for his brother Titianus, ...and entrusted him with the direction of the campaign. 2.24 Meanwhile, brilliant successes were gained under the command of Celsus and Paulinus. Caecina was greatly annoyed by the fruitlessness of all his undertakings... ...and by the waning reputation of his army. He had been repulsed from Placentia. His auxiliaries had been recently cut up... ...and even when the skirmishers had met in a series of actions... ...frequent indeed, but not worth relating he had been worsted and now that Valens was coming up fearful that all the distinctions of the campaign would centre in that general he made a hasty attempt to retrieve his credit but with more impetuosity than prudence twelve miles from Cremona at a place called the castors he posted some of the bravest of his auxiliaries concealed in the woods that there overhang the road the cavalry were ordered to move forward and after provoking a battle Voluntarily to retreat and draw on the enemy in hasty pursuit till the ambuscade could make a simultaneous attack. The scheme was betrayed to the Orthonianist generals, and Paulinus assumed the command of the infantry, Celsus of the cavalry. The veterans of the thirteenth legion, four cohorts of auxiliaries, and five hundred cavalry were drawn up on the left side of the road. The raised causeway was occupied by three praetorian cohorts ranged in deep columns. On the right front stood the first legion with two cohorts of auxiliaries and 500 cavalry. Besides these, a 1,000 cavalry, belonging to the Praetorian Guard and to the auxiliaries, were brought up to compete a victory or to retrieve a repulse. 2.25 Before the hostile lines engaged, the Vitellianists began to retreat, but Celsus, aware of the stratagem, kept his men back. The Vitellianists rashly left their position ...and seeing Celsus gradually give way, followed too far in pursuit, and themselves fell into an ambuscade. The auxiliaries assailed them on either flank. The legions were opposed to them in front, and the cavalry, by a sudden movement, had surrounded their rear. Suetonius Paulinus did not at once give the infantry the signal to engage. He was a man naturally tardy in action, and one who preferred a cautious and scientific plan of operations to any success which was the result of accident. He ordered the trenches to be filled up the plain to be cleared and the line to be extended holding that it would be time enough to begin his victory when he had provided against being vanquished this delay gave the vitellianists time to retreat into some vineyards which were obstructed by the interlacing layers of the vines and close to which was a small wood from this place they again ventured to emerge slaughtering the foremost of the praetorian cavalry King Epiphanes was wounded while he was zealously cheering on the troops for Otho. 2.26 Then the Othonianist infantry charged. The enemy's line was completely crushed and the reinforcements who were coming up to their aid were also put to flight. Kaikina indeed had not brought up his cohorts in a body but one by one as this was done during the battle it increased the general confusion because the troops who were thus divided not being strong at any one point were borne away by the panic of the fugitives. Besides this, a mutiny broke out in the camp because the whole army was not led into action. Julius Gratus, prefect of the camp, was put in irons, on a suspicion of a treacherous undertaking with his brother who was serving with Otho's army, at the very time that the Othonianists had done the same thing and on the same grounds to that brother Julius Fronto, a tribune. In fact, such was the panic everywhere, among the fugitives and among the troops coming up, in the lines and in front of the entrenchments, that it was very commonly said on both sides that caecina and his whole army might have been destroyed had not Suetonius Paulinus given the signal of recall. Paulinus alleged that he feared the effects of so much additional toil and so long a march, apprehending that the Vitellianists might issue fresh from their camp and attack his weary troops, who, once thrown into confusion, would have no reserves to fall back upon. A few approved the general's policy. ...but it was unfavourably canvassed by the army at large. 2.27 The effect of this disaster on the Vitalianists... ...was not so much to drive them to fear as to draw them to obedience. Nor was this the case only among the troops of Caecina, ...who indeed laid all the blame upon his soldiers... ...more ready, as he said, for mutiny than for battle. The forces also of Fabius Valens, who had now reached Aquinum, ...laid aside their contempt for the enemy and, anxious to retrieve their credit, began to yield a more respectful and uniform obedience to their general. A serious mutiny, however, had raged among them, of which, as it was not convenient to interrupt the orderly narrative of Caecina's operations, I shall take up the history at an earlier period. I have already described how the Batavian cohorts, who separated from the 14th Legion during the Neuronian War, hearing on their way to Britain of the rising of Vitellius, joined Fabius Valens in the country of the Lingones. They behaved themselves insolently, boasting, as they visited the quarters of the several legions, that they had mastered the men of the 14th, that they had taken Italy from Nero, that the whole destiny of the war lay in their hands. Such language was insulting to the soldiers and offensive to the general. The discipline of the army was relaxed by the brawls and quarrels which ensued. At last Valens began to suspect that insolence would end in actual treachery. 2.28 When, therefore, intelligence reached him that the cavalry of the Treveri and the Tungrian infantry had been defeated by Otho's fleet, and that Gallia Narbonensis was blockaded, anxious at once to protect a friendly population, and, like a skilful soldier to separate cohorts so turbulent, and, while they remained united so inconveniently strong, he directed a detachment of the Batarians to proceed to the relief of the province. This having been heard and become generally known, the allies were discontented and the legions murmured we are being deprived they said of the help of our bravest men those veteran troops victorious in so many campaigns now that the enemy is in sight are withdrawn so to speak from the very field of battle if indeed a province be of more importance than the capital and the safety of the empire let us all follow them thither but if the reality the support the mainstay of success center in italy you must not tear as it were from a body its very strongest limbs 2.29. In the midst of these fierce exclamations, Valens, sending his lictors into the crowd, attempted to quell the mutiny. On this they attacked the general himself, hurled stones at him, and when he fled, pursued him. Crying out that he was concealing the spoil of Gaul, the gold of the men of Vienna, the hire of their own toils, they ransacked his baggage, and probed with javelins and lances the walls of the general's tent and the very ground beneath. Valens, disguised in the garb of a slave, found concealment with a subaltern officer of the cavalry. After this, alfenius Verus, prefect of the camp, seeing that the mutiny was gradually subsiding, promoted the reaction by the following device. He forbade the centurions to visit the sentinels, and discontinued the trumpet calls by which the troops are summoned to their usual military duties. Thereupon all stood paralysed and gazed at each other in amazement, Panic stricken by the very fact that there was no one to direct them. By their silence, by their submission, finally by their tears and entreaties, they craved forgiveness. But when Valens, thus unexpectedly preserved, came forward in sad plight shedding tears, they were moved to joy, to pity, even to affection. Their revulsion to delight was just that of a mob, always extreme in either emotion. They greeted him with praises and congratulations and surrounding him with the eagles and standards carried him to the tribunal. With the politic prudence he refrained from demanding capital punishment in any case, yet, fearing that he might lay himself more open to suspicion by concealment of his feelings, he censored a few persons, well aware that in civil wars the soldiers have more license than the generals. 2.30 While they were fortifying a camp at Ticinum. The news of Kaikina's defeat reached them, and the mutiny nearly broke out afresh from an impression that underhand dealing and delay on the part of Valens had kept them away from the battle. They refused all rest. They would not wait for their general. They advanced in front of the standards and hurried on the standard-bearers. After a rapid march, they joined Kaikina. The character of Valens did not stand well with Kaikina's army. They complained that, though so much weaker in numbers, they had been exposed to the whole force of the enemy thus at once excusing themselves and extolling in the implied flattery the strength of the new arrivals who might they feared despise them as beaten and spiritless soldiers though valens had the stronger army nearly double the number of legions and auxiliaries yet the partialities of the soldiers inclined to Caecina, not only from the geniality of heart which he was thought more ready to display but even from his vigorous age his commanding person "'and a certain superficial attractiveness which he possessed. "'The result was jealousy between the two generals. "'Caikina ridiculed his colleague as a man of foul and infamous character. "'Valens retorted with charges of emptiness and vanity. "'But, concealing their enmity, they devoted themselves to their common interest, "'and in frequent letters, without any thought of pardon, "'heaped all matter of charges upon Otho, "'while the Othonianists' generals, though they had the most abundant materials for invective against Vitellius, refrained from employing them. 2.31 In fact, before the death of these two men, and it was by his death that Otho gained high renown, as Vitellius incurred by his the foulest infamy, Vitellius, with his indolent luxury, was less dreaded than Otho with his ardent passions. The murder of Galba had made the one terrible and odious, while no one reckoned against the other the guilt of having begun the war vitellius with his sensuality and gluttony was his own enemy otho with his profligacy his cruelty and his recklessness was held to be more dangerous to the commonwealth when Caecina and valens had united their forces the vitellianists had no longer any reason to delay giving battle with their whole strength otho deliberated as to whether protracting the war or risking an engagement were the better course then Suetonius paulinus thinking that it befitted his reputation which was such that no one at that period was looked upon as a more skilful soldier to give an opinion on the whole conduct of the war contended that impatience would benefit the enemy while delay would serve their own cause 2.32 the entire army of vitellius he said has already arrived nor have they much strength in their rear since gaul is ready to rise and to abandon the banks of the rhine When such hostile tribes are ready to burst in would not answer his purpose a hostile people and an intervening sea keep from him the army of britain spain is not over full of troops gallia narbonensis has been cowed by the attack of our ships and by a defeat italy beyond the paedus is shut in by the alps cannot be relieved from the sea and has been exhausted by the passage of his army for that army there is nowhere any corn And without supplies an army cannot be kept together then the germans the most formidable part of the enemy's forces should the war be protracted into the summer will sink with enfeebled frames under the change of country and climate many a war formidable in its first impetuosity has passed into nothing through the weariness of delay we on the other hand have on all sides abundant resources and loyal adherents we have pannonia moesia dalmatia the east with its armies yet intact. We have Italy and Rome, the capital of the empire, the senate and the people, names that never lose their splendour, though they may sometimes be eclipsed. We have the wealth of the state and of private individuals. We have a vast supply of money, which in a civil war is a mightier weapon than the sword. Our soldiers are inured to the climate of Italy, or to yet greater heat. We have the river Padus on our front, and cities strongly garrisoned and fortified, none of which will surrender to the enemy, as the defence of Placentia has proved. Let Otho therefore protract the war. In a few days the 14th Legion, itself highly renowned, will arrive with the troops from Moesia. He may then again consider the question, and should a battle be resolved on, we shall fight with increased strength. 2.33 Marius Celsus acquiesced in the opinion of Paulinus, and Annius Gallus, who a few days before had been seriously injured by the fall of his horse, was reported to agree by those who had been sent to ascertain his opinion. Otho was inclined to risk a decisive battle. His brother Titianus, and Proculus, the prefect of the Praetorian guard, ignorant and therefore impatient, declared that fortune, the gods, and the genius of Otho, were with their counsels, and would be with their enterprises. That no one might dare to oppose their views, they had taken refuge in flattery. It having been resolved to give battle, it became a question whether it would be better for the emperor to be present in person or to withdraw. Paulinus and Celsus no longer opposed, for they would not seem to put the emperor in the way of peril. And these same men who suggested the baser policy prevailed on him to retire to Bruxellum, and thus secure from the hazards of the field, to reserve himself for the administration of empire. The day first gave the death-blow to the party of Otho. Not only did a strong detachment of the praetorian cohorts, of the bodyguard and of the cavalry, depart with him, but the spirit of those who remained was broken, for the men suspected their generals, and Otho, who alone had the confidence of the soldiers, while he himself trusted in none but them, had left the generals' authority on a doubtful footing. 2.34 None of this escaped the vitellianists, for as is usual in civil wars, there were many deserters, and the spies, while busy in inquiring into the plans of the enemy, failed to conceal their own. Meanwhile Caecina and Valens remained quiet, and watched intently for the moment when the enemy in his blindness should rush upon destruction, and found the usual substitute for wisdom in waiting for the folly of others. They began to form a bridge, making a feint of crossing the padus in the face of an opposing force of gladiators. They wished also to keep their own soldiers from passing their unoccupied time in idleness. Boats were ranged at equal distances from each other, connected at both ends by strong beams, and with their heads turned against the current, while anchors were thrown out above to keep the bridge firm. The cables, however, instead of being taut, hung loose in the water, in order that as the stream rose the vessels might rise without their arrangement being disturbed. On the end of the bridge was placed a turret, It was built out on the last boat, and from it engines and machines might be worked to repel the enemy. The soldiers of Otho also raised a turret on the opposite bank, and hurled from it stones and flaming missiles. 2.36 2.35 In the middle of the river was an island. While the gladiators were making their way to it in boats, the Germans swam and outstripped them. A considerable number, as it chanced, had effected the passage, when Mesa, having manned some light galleys, attacked them with the most active of his gladiators. But the gladiator has not in battle the firmness of the regular soldier, and now, as they stood on rocking vessels, they could not direct their blows like men who had a sure footing on land. As the men in their alarm made confused movements, rowers and combatants were mingled together in disorder. Upon this the Germans themselves leapt into the shallows, laid a hold of the boats, ...climbed over the gunwales, or sank them with their hands. All this passed in the sight of both armies, and the more it delighted the Ritalianists, the more vehemently did the Orthonianists curse the cause and author of the disaster. 2.36 The conflict was terminated by the flight of the vanquished, who carried off what boats were left. Then they cried out for the execution of Mesa. He had been wounded by a javelin thrown from a distance and the soldiers had made a rush upon him with drawn swords when he was saved by the interference of the tribunes and centurions soon after Vestricius Spurinna, having received orders to that effect from Otho joined with his cohorts leaving but a moderate force in garrison at Placentia after this Otho sent Flavius Sabinus, consul elect to take the command of the troops which had been under Mesa the soldiers were delighted by this change of generals while the generals were led by these continual outbreaks to regard with disgust so hateful a service end of book two part two